You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you're with us. Over the weekend, a lot of people here in Michigan expressed overwhelming feelings of pride as we watched trucks carry out the first doses of coronavirus vaccine from Pfizer's manufacturing facility in Portage on the west side of the state. And just yesterday, Michigan's first doses of the vaccine outside a clinical trial were given at two hospitals to frontline workers. Yes, we are now in the era of the COVID vaccine. And I think for all of us, there is this incredible just celebration inside that we've finally gotten to this point. And while it is not the end of this saga, it is maybe the beginning of the end. But despite all the hope and relief that this news has brought us, there are still huge hurdles to overcome when it comes to distributing this vaccine and making sure people are willing to take it. My next guest says the federal government has done little to address those challenges so far, and that is a huge problem. I want to welcome Dr. Megan Ranney, who is Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Brown University and a practicing emergency physician and researcher to the program. Dr. Ranney, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. It's a joy to join you. Yeah. So you have long spoken about the federal government's failures on PPE and testing, two of the strategies uh, that we had in place to try to deal with the spread of covid uh, you say those criticisms are not any different when it comes to vaccines. Explain what has gone wrong in those areas and why it just doesn't bode well for the government to handle the distribution uh, of this life-saving uh, chapter in, in, in the COVID-19 era. Absolutely. So I'm going to start by saying that, as you just said, I am absolutely thrilled um, that the first vaccine is approved and out and getting in healthcare workers' arms across our country right now. It is a tremendous moment. However, uh, I have just tremendous concerns um, about what comes next as we start to try to distribute this vaccine to the general population. Over the last nine months, we have continually failed to spur adequate production of basic supplies that are needed to stop the spread of COVID. We face continued shortages in personal protective equipment, continued shortages of reagents and swabs for testing. Uh, we still lack accurate um, data infrastructures and architectures to help us track who needs PPE and testing supplies and to get the right products to the right people at the right time. Um, and as we have failed to address those issues on a national level, Similarly, we have failed to set up a national level logistics system to adequately distribute this vaccine to everyone that needs it. You know, this first phase is going to go very nicely. Um, Operation Warp Speed has done a great job of partnering with major healthcare centers who are equipped to track who gets the shots and to make sure people get the second shot. Major healthcare centers are also equipped to store this vaccine at the very cold temperatures that are needed. Um, but when we start talking about sending this out to small doctor's offices and drugstores across the country, getting the right people in the door, making sure they come back two weeks or 21 days later, depending on which vaccine it is, we're going to be facing a lot of trouble. And we're already seeing supply chain problems with the Pfizer vaccine, um, where the number of doses is not as big as they had anticipated. I, I worry um, that we've 
appropriately invested a lot in the discovery and the validation of the vaccine, but not in that critical last mile that we need for the vaccine to achieve its potential, mm. which requires getting it in people's arms. So, so I, I, I want you to try to reconcile for the listeners these these contrasting narratives that mm. while we were trying to fight the virus and fight its spread, we, we were doing a, a, a pretty bad job, as you say, of making sure that people had the equipment that they needed, that we were doing the kind of testing that would really lead to us knowing, you know, how spread, how widespread the, the virus was and, and controlling that. At the same time, we had this tremendous operation called Operation Warp Speed developing a vaccine in the, the shortest period of time that, that anyone probably has ever uh, uh, done that. What, what accounts for the difference there? Uh, and, and what can we learn from that difference now to make up for what you say is coming, which is that we just aren't really prepared to distribute this vaccine and make sure people are taking it in, in the, the same way that we made sure that the vaccine got developed. Yeah, I mean, I think this is so emblematic of the problems with our healthcare system in general. Uh, the vaccine is a beautiful, important thing. The federal funding was absolutely needed. I'm thrilled that the administration put money into co-development um, of these novel vaccines. But the public health infrastructure isn't sexy. It's not something that results in a lot of photo ops. And we have continually underfunded public health and prevention in our country. You know, states have asked for uh, somewhere between six and $12 billion uh, in order to be able to adequately set up the logistics to distribute this vaccine. Um, your own state of Michigan has done an incredible job in articulating what's needed um, both for vaccine distribution and for testing. Um, but money prevents that uh, vision from being fully realized. Um, we think that somehow magically, just because we create technology, it's going to elevate health. And we forget that we also have to address all of those structural factors that are really the determinants of health. We have to make it easy for people to get this vaccine, whether they have cars or not. We have to make it easy for them to get this vaccine, whether they read, whether they speak English, whether they have health insurance. We have to make it easy for places, whether they are rural or urban, to be able to store the vaccine at the right temperature so it doesn't lose efficacy. And we have to invest in the public health messaging to get people to trust it. That all takes finances, and it's not something that's as interesting to our current um, federal government as doing the splashy photo ops. So, so how much of this is about the president, the current president of the United States, and his disposition toward the vaccines, toward the disease? I mean, he has sent a lot of mixed messages, and he has sort of, uh, I guess, reached for you know glorifying. Uh, milestones and things like that while ignoring pretty basic uh, public health imperatives. Is this all about who's in charge and might we expect that things might look different in, after January 20th? Or is this about the, the, the sort of bureaucracy of, of the federal government that, that survives from one administration to the next? Uh, is this about is is this about a, a person in an administration and and maybe not about the government itself? 
You know, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that the current administration has continually um, denigrated expertise. It has put people in charge of things who have no experience with the thing that they're in charge of. Um, I know that the Biden-Harris transition team is already hard at work on logistics. Ron Klain, the chief of staff um, for uh, our president-elect, um, has tremendous experience um, with setting up um, pandemic response uh, with Ebola, both overseas and in this country. Um, and, and so I fully anticipate that when we do have folks with public health, supply chain, um, logistics expertise in charge, we'll have a much better system. Um, but there is also gridlock at the federal level. You know, we're looking at the continued challenges with getting another uh, stimulus bill through um, to support folks whose unemployment checks are running out, to support um, keeping businesses afloat that have to shut because of temporarily closed because of this virus. Uh, and so thinking that a new administration will magically fix all of those issues is, of course, um, naive. Mm. <laughs> there's, there's still going to be um, some challenges uh, in, in the House and Senate um, with, with getting that funding through. But, but I do think that the lack of consistent messaging from the top has been a huge problem. I mean, I look at what you all have been through in Michigan um, with the protests against the very well thought out and very scientifically based um, new pause that you're going through. Mm. Um, and that's just, that's not warranted. That's based on, on really false information. Your governor has done a tremendous job um, of, of using science to fight this virus. And I'm hopeful um, that with the change in administration that we'll get a little more support for that um, uh, on a national scale. Right. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Megan Ranney. She's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Brown University, also a practicing emergency physician and researcher. Uh, we're talking about the federal government's failures during the COVID-19 pandemic and how those failures could spill over into the vaccine distribution that, that has just started uh, in our country, started literally right here in the state of Michigan as trucks uh, left the Pfizer manufacturing facility in Portage uh, just a few days ago with the very first doses uh, of the COVID-19 vaccine to be distributed nationwide. Um, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, do you plan to get the coronavirus vaccine when it's available? Tell us why or why not. And tell us what you think of the job the federal government has done to help manufacture this vaccine, and what kind of job do you expect them to do with distribution? Do you trust that this will be handled in a way that makes some sense? Uh, how are you feeling about the rollout so far? Does it make you hopeful that life might return to some relative normalcy in the near future? Or are you worried that this might not be the pandemic cure so many of us are really, really desperately hoping for? Uh, as always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into uh, the conversation. Uh, also, if you just are like me, someone who uh, had such a visceral emotional response to those photos and the video of those trucks taking these first doses out of that uh, manufacturing plant in, in Portage. Uh, give us a call. Let us know what that's like as well. We, we have been through all of this together here in southeast Michigan, 
as uh, the pandemic has gone from one phase to another, I think this is uh, a very important inflection point. And and I, I expect that uh, a lot of our listeners have had the same kind of emotional response uh, that I did. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Um, before we get to our listeners, uh, Dr. Rani, I, I want you to talk a little bit about State and uh, state healthcare systems and others who've been pitching in and trying to do their best, uh, while the federal government has not really had its uh, had its act together. We had a caller, uh, Trey from Detroit, who couldn't stay on the line, but he wanted to give a shout out to members of Rotary, Rotary Foundation in India who have sent tens of thousands of dollars worth of PPE to frontline workers here in Michigan, and it's being distributed by our local Rotary. Here in Detroit, I, we could spend hours talking about examples like that of people stepping up. Um, but I, I sense that for you, um, you know, it's just not enough. That that that's not what we should be relying on. That we should be looking to the federal government to be able to coordinate all these things uh, and and show some leadership in terms of. Uh, how to fight the virus, and then how to deal with the cure. Yeah, so I think it's both and. I'm actually the co-founder of an organization called Get Us PPE, Hmm. uh, which was created to get donated personal protective equipment to those in need across the country. Back in March when we were created, we got donations from folks that had leftover masks or gloves in their back basement from home and construction projects or from a dentist's office um, and sent them locally um, to healthcare providers who were in need. We're still in existence 10 months later and we're finding now that uh, 90% of requests for donations of personal protective equipment come from people that are working at nursing homes, home healthcare aides, clinics, um, not from the major hospitals anymore, but from those frontline providers who are still desperately in need. And I will say that the generosity of average Americans has made a huge difference. We've delivered millions of pieces of PPE across the country, including in Michigan, um, and and it has just transformed the safety um, of our frontline workers. So I don't wanna discount the value of ordinary Americans. And I think our efforts as communities to support our own really, really matter. I sometimes make the analogy to the victory gardens of World War II, Mm. you know, my grandparents, didn't feed their whole community, but each little victory garden made a difference and it gave them some hope. And I think that's so important. Uh, I do wanna see the federal government do more, but we can't count on it for everything. And so our state and local and philanthropic work also matters. Um, The trouble is, is that right now, it's not that I'm asking the federal government to do everything, but they're just really not doing that minimum of setting the strategy to help our states out. Again, you and Michigan um, have a great Department of Health. There's actually an emergency physician who's your chief medical executive, Dr. Caldoun, who's done an incredible job. Yes. Um, but uh, not every state is so lucky and a unified distribution strategy would be tremendously helpful and allow states and philanthropy and public-private partnerships with businesses to concentrate on where they can provide the most value rather than trying to fill every gap. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation and bring in another voice to talk about another challenge for vaccine distribution, the level of distrust that exists in communities of color, including right here in the city of Detroit. We will also get to more of your comments and calls. We'll hear from Stephen Warren and Carolyn and Royal Oak. 
If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Or you can go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to make them part of the conversation as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Dr. Megan Ranney. She's an associate professor of emergency medicine at Brown University, also a practicing emergency physician and researcher. Uh, and I want to welcome another voice to the conversation we're having about vaccines and their distribution uh, and what chapter we are entering in the COVID-19 Saga. Dr. Mariata Daniel Eccles is program officer with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. She focuses on health equity in Michigan. She's also a member of the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities. Uh, Dr. Daniel Eccles, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to start with you. A recent University of Michigan survey says just over 60% of Detroiters are either unlikely or very unlikely to get this coronavirus vaccine. Uh, Black and Hispanic Detroiters were more likely to say they would not get vaccinated than any other group. Talk about this racial component of that level of distrust and what we're supposed to do about it. You know, sometimes when people talk about this, they talk about the history of medical abuses against communities of color. Mm -hmm. And that's very real. And I don't want to discount that history because take, for example, the first thing people always mention, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I'm mentioning it now is to ground people in some dates about that. That started in 1932 and ended in 1972. It started before my parents were born, and it ended after I was born, and I am 50 years old. So mm. that is a historical example, but... It spanned two generations of people of color before it ended. And I also want to lift up that black and brown folks aren't just distrustful about history. They have real life experiences in the present that make them not trust the system. Um, For example, the Kaiser Family Foundation did some work with ESPN to um, survey folks just this past August and September of 2020. And they found that one in five, 20% of the black folks they talked to reported that they had been treated unfairly based on their race while getting health care in the past 12 months. That's like three months ago. People said, I I don't get treated fairly. Um, Or you can look at this past September where a whistleblower um, who worked in an ICE detention facility in Georgia said that, women there were getting forced hysterectomies and sterilization. And we have a history in our country of forced sterilization. But again, this is a current example, not a historical example. So when you have folks who know the history of how black and brown folks have been treated, they have their own actual experiences in real time, and they hear about the current experiences of other communities, That, combined with 
you were talking earlier about some of the mixed political messages mm-hmm. <laughs> related to this. Mm-hmm. The politic I would say the politicalization of the vaccine in some ways also has weaponized it and people and it's hard to trust what that vaccine is and if it's actually gonna be good for everybody. Um so the politics has undermined the public health and the science behind the vaccine and black and brown people have current time as we speak reasons to not trust health, sure. the health system yeah. in combination. Um, so we have to really start thinking about. So, yeah, I mean, messengers. what's what what is the answer then? I mean, all of that is is good reason for people to be cautious or or mm-hmm. super skeptical. But COVID-19 is also killing so many yep. people in communities of color. We don't have to say that more than once here in the city of Detroit, where we have lost uh, just uh, an unfathomable number of, of people. All of us have people that we know, lots of people that we know who are no longer around, who were here mm-hmm. in February, who are not here now because of, of COVID. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's really important that people take this vaccine. Uh, how do we, how do we get them to, to come to a place in their minds where the history and the present aren't convincing us that uh, this isn't safe. So in some ways it sounds very easy to say the messenger matters, but it is in fact true that the messenger matters in this situation. When we were, the task force first started up and we were really focused on how do we get the message out to folks in Detroit, for example, about testing and, and participating in, co- in contact tracing. We did a lot of work, um, some of this communications work to communities of color, but also um, we partnered with community-based organizations to set up some of the testing sites. Some of them were faith-based organizations, some of them were not. Uh, but the point is the government didn't just come up and put up a tent and say, oh, y'all have to come get tested. We partnered with trusted members of community and put testing sites in the places people go and trust. And then once they got there, we could have a conversation with them about contact tracing or do you have a medical home? Or by the way, do you want a flu shot while you're here? Hmm. So part of it is um, trusted messengers who can um, reach communities and the communication strategy that kind of can get into communities. In our state, we have now a bipartisan commission that's focused on the vaccine and messaging about the vaccine. It's my hope that the bipartisan nature of that will also help depoliticize some of this. Um, and frankly, some of it is just a, has to be about time because if you're someone who you were not treating me fairly in the past. You're not treating me fairly now. You want me to trust that this is fair. Some of this is, has to just be about time. And to see that it works and that people are Yes. Let me see that it works. Affected. Let me see how this is going to happen. Let me see if you're going to prioritize the things that I care about in a culturally competent way. Hmm. You can't just flip a switch on this. We've had multiple generations of distrust. It's not going to change just because the FDA says it's okay to take this shot. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, Dr. Megan Ranney, uh, you also believe that the federal government has a role to play here as well. Yes, I, I absolutely do. Um, as we just discussed the history of not just the history, but the ongoing um, structural racism, mm-hmm. both explicit and implicit in our country, um, is is vast and detrimental. But things like Dr. Fauci emphasizing that this vaccine was developed by Dr. Kizzy, a black female uh, researcher, mm. is just critically important. Um, the pictures of getting those vaccines in the arms um, of our essential workers um, are critically important. And again, those intentional decisions about how to prioritize who gets the vaccine and making sure that the vaccine does not go to those who are rich and powerful, but to those who need it most, Um, to our essential workers, to our communities that have been decimated by this disease. That's a choice. That's about having the right data and and about prioritizing equity in where the vaccine goes, knowing that we are going to have insufficient doses for the near future. We don't have 330 million doses right now, it's really about prioritization, and that's where the federal government can be helpful. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones if you want to join the conversation. Uh, Shot on Twitter says, uh, I'm in on the vaccine as soon as it's offered to me. Uh, let's go to Steve and Warren. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Uh, give me that shot now. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will tell you that I lost my real job due to COVID. Mm. I am now door dashing. It puts me out in the public every day. It's not so bad when you drop food off, although sometimes I have gone into medical facilities. Um, It doesn't make me happy. Mm. But it's more when you pick up, there are certain restaurants where you'll have 10, 12 drivers standing around in a room waiting for the food that they're supposed to be picking up. And it scares me. I'm scared. I'm 66 years old. I'm in relatively good health, but I smoked for a number, you know, for most of my life. I've just quit smoking recently, and I'm scared. Yeah. Steve, I, you know, I, I hear you, and, and that you're absolutely right to say that when it's offered to you, and you might be, because of your age, in, in one of the priority groups, uh, you would get it before before I would, uh, it seems, uh, you know, you're right to say, look, this is the best protection against this incredibly dangerous disease that, that even all of the things that you do each day in your work to try to make yourself safe uh, are important. They, they just aren't the same uh, as a vaccine. Steve, I'm really, really glad you called uh, and, and, and shared that with us. Um, let's go to Delphine and Warren. Delphine, what's on your mind? Hi. Hi. Okay. Um, I have a relative who is in religious life, and I, and he would need to get the vaccine because he is out in dealing in the public and all that. But mm-hmm. at any rate, he says he would not accept the vaccine if he knew that the cells were used from abortive fetuses. Mm. To develop it, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Delphine, that's a, I, I'm glad you called and shared that bit of information. It's one of the things that I've heard out in 
the world about people being concerned about the vaccine. Uh, Dr. Rani, I wonder if you can shed some light on, on that concern. Yeah, this vaccine was not developed um, using uh, cells from aborted fetuses. Um, so you can put that um, uh, concern to rest. Mm. Um, the monoclonal antibodies um, that are out there, Regeneron, um, did rely on cell lines from decades ago. Um, but these vaccines had uh, no relationship to um research, although that can be a very important part of medical advances. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. Daniel Eccles, the false information that gets <laughs> spread, uh, you know, Delphine says that her relative believed that this was perhaps developed with, uh, with the help of aborted fetuses. Um, that, that's a special concern, I think, in communities of color as well, right? Uh, the, the, the lies that get spread and that just take root. And it's very hard to, to, to reverse people's thinking once they, once they dig in on it. Yes. When I was listening to that caller, I was thinking that part of what we also need is clear information, um, scientific information that doesn't necessarily believe mean that everyone's going to believe it right away but part of our challenge is that there's been so much misinformation that's come from places that at least in theory we should have should be able to trust but we have not been able to trust over the past several months as it relates to COVID-19 in general much less this vaccine that we we as a nation collectively have we were already in a hole when it came to communities of color trusting the system and mm-hmm. taking vaccines, even things like flu shots, even before this. And we just continue to dig ourselves deeper and deeper with um, a consistent campaign to undermine science. We did that to ourselves, and now we are going to have to um, do some repair there. Yeah. We're and go back the other direction. who does the repair and who carries the message matters. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Dr. Megan Ranney and Dr. Mariana Daniel Eccles. It was really great to have both of you here for this conversation. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow for a conversation about the widening gap among libertarians. Some who despise President Trump and everything he stands for and some who are openly embracing him. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.